grab that as an outline for today's message. Oh, no, that's at the end. My wife's giving me a little clue here. All right. So today at the end of the message, we'll do, thank you, babe, you helped me out. Uh, today at the end of the message, we'll do the offering, and we'll take our offering, and, uh, and then we'll invite you to come forward and do everything in the blue. All right. Just kidding. So grab your Bible, if you will, and grab that message outline inside your worship guide, and um, I'm going to invite you to grab a pen, because if you're new to Harvest Point, you might not know this. We're one of those churches that that you're going to get the most out of it if you take some notes, you underline some things, circle some things. Man, is that true this morning? So you will definitely want to have a pen with you, okay? And I'm going to read uh, at least one, possibly five, scriptures that are not in your outline. So having your Bible, your iPhone, or your Android device will also help you uh, be able to reference those scriptures as well. Now, we started a brand new series last week called The Secret of Contentment. And we talked about living in a world that entices us, advertises to us all the time about more, 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 more. And uh, we're going to move forward in that. We've got a three-part series here. And so last week, we we talked about, um, and and every week, we're going to talk about the Philippian church and how the Philippian church has something to teach us about how, how they were so generous and how they were content. Even in the midst of great persecution, they had great joy. And last week, if you missed last week's message, I want to remind you that every week you can find our messages for free on our website, harvestpointumc.com, or on iTunes. You can subscribe to our podcast. It will come right into you for free every week. If you missed last week, then that's the, fun, that's the fundamental, that's the foundational starting place for where we're going to go for three weeks. Last week, we talked about learning the secret of contentment. That's the secret of contentment can be learned, and I told you that every week I'm going to talk about some practices that will help us learn contentment, which is what one of God's things for our life. Now, remind, let me remind you that word. We practice, right? We practice. I was talking with a teacher this past week who was a math teacher, and they said, you know how to get better at math? You practice math. That's what you do. The more you practice math, the better you'll get at math. This is true for everything, baseball, tennis, football, music. You want to get better at something? You want to go deeper in it? You want to you, you make it more where you're an expert in it, you have to practice, practice. So last week, I talked to you about four practices. We talked about being thankful, being teachable, being flexible, and being dependent on God's power. That's our starting place. Now, today, we're going to go a little bit deeper, and I want to kind of point your attention to the title of the message today, okay? What's the title of the message? Everybody say it out loud. The Silent Assassin. Now, today, I'm going to talk very strategically, very pointedly, about an enemy that wants to keep you from contentment, an enemy that wants to rob you from being happy. Let me say that one more different way. An enemy that wants to steal your joy and make you always a person who wants more and more and more. And so you have a foe, you have an enemy that wants to keep you from contentment, and that's what I want to dive into together. Now, before I do that, let me share with you something that that, um, I... I don't know if this makes any sense to you, but just go with me, if you will. I um, was thinking about trying to share an image of this, this enemy with you, and my mind <clears throat> went to the preparation that my son's coaches do on his football team. Now, my son has been very fortunate, my youngest child, to be a part of a very su- successful football program. And um, we've been a part of that program for four years, and in that four years, the last three years, he's played for a state championship. Very, very, very successful program. I 
knew they were successful because of how they do things, but a moment happened for me recently that opened my eyes, and I realized that part of the reason that that football team is so successful is because they scout the other team so well. They know the enemy. They know the foe so well before they show up on a Friday night to play ball. And how did I learn that? I mean, I kind of knew it already, but it became crystal clear to me one day when I walked into the coach's office. Now, let me show it to you on the screen, and I'm going to break it down just real quickly. This was so impressive to me that I videoed it, all right? Now, every one of the probably eight coaches all share one office, and I, and I went into the office, and I started filming this board right here. This was one team we were going to be playing. I think it was the first round of the state playoffs. And um, you, I know this is too small for you to read, but what I, wanna, I want you to understand is that those coaches had examined every play that other team had ever ran throughout the year. They knew their tendencies to run it left, middle, or right on the field. They knew what they would do on third down, on second down, on the first down, depending upon the different yardages. They know what that team is going to do before that team normally does it. They know their tendencies. So let me say that differently. Every good scouting report, uh, report will tell you who your enemy is or who your foe is. It will tell you what their strength is, how strong they are, and where their strengths are. It will tell you what their tactics are, what they do, and then it will tell you also where you're vulnerable to their strengths, all right? And then what you're going to do. That, that's a scouting report. And so I videoed this, and on this wall it told you the percentages of the plays they run, where they run them, how they run them. On this wall were some of their tactics, and the coaches had put down, they do this well. We've got to watch out for this player on the field. This is the way we need to respond here. We can do this to counter that. They had thought about how they're going to, and they thought about where they are weak to be able to name who their foe is and come up with a victory. Guys, this blew me away. I thought they went on a football field and played ball, you know? No. There is so much more to preparing to fight the battle than just showing up on a Friday night. And so I don't know if that really gets you to the place where I want you to be. Well, what I, what, today I want to talk to you about an enemy that will steal your contentment. I want to talk to you about a foe, and I want to do a little scouting report straight out of the Bible. The Bible will give us a scouting report for an enemy who wants you to be discontent, and it will tell us who the enemy is. It will tell us what, how strong they are, or they're, they're, how, how formidable they are. It will tell us their tactics, and it will even tell you where you and I are vulnerable. So we're going we're gonna to turn to the Philippian church, but before we do that, the scouting report is actually found in the book of 1 Timothy, and it's that first scripture right there in your outline, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses uh, 5 through 10. We're going to break it up into two parts, if that, uh, that's okay. But let's, let's, let's just study the first part for a minute. By the way, who is Paul and who is Timothy? Paul is the mentor. Timothy is the mentee. Paul is writing to Timothy to guide this young guy in ministry. Um, this guy is probably in his early 20s, Timothy. And Paul, is, Paul knows that he is struggling to counter some false teachers who've come in and they're teaching, uh, they're, they're teaching falsehoods. They're not teaching truth. And he speaks to them about these men that Timothy's going to have to fight against. Here's what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 5 through 10. False teachers produce, this is what the result of allowing those guys to teach is, they, they produce people of corrupt minds who have been robbed of the truth. So Paul is telling Timothy, these guys, they're not teaching truth. They don't even have the truth. They've been robbed of the truth, and they think that godliness is a means 
to financial gain. By the way, have you ever heard that before? Have you ever heard somebody preach that whole prosperity thing? If you become more and more, and the more godly you become, the more rich you will become, Paul is countering it. And Paul is saying, these guys, they don't even have the truth. They're being robbed of the truth. And they believe that, that godliness is the way they're going to become rich. And he's saying, don't, you cannot let this false teaching spread through the church. You can't. And he's telling Timothy to battle against it. And look at what he says. He says, but godliness with contentment. If you have your pen, you might want to underline that word. There's our word, right? We're studying what it means, the secret of contentment. We're going to hear it from the Philippian church later. Right now we're hearing it from Paul. Talk to Timothy. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So the idea here is God's path for you. Listen, you want to grow up? You want to be like Jesus? God's path for you is that you would be godly and growing in godliness and content, growing in contentedness. Does that make sense? Now, we're going to break that down even more for a minute, but Paul says, listen, it ain't about getting rich because you get godly. It's about actually learning what it means, learning, learning, learning what it means to grow in contentedness. And then Paul says it this way, for we brought, we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. What Paul is basically saying with that one sentence is, listen, Timothy, I've had, I've had really the best clothes, and I've had no clothes. I've lived in the best houses, and I've lived in a box. And at the end of the day, everything, the way you started out life, you, didn't, you were born with nothing, right? You didn't have any clothes. You didn't, you didn't own anything. You were born with nothing. And one day, For every one of us, 100% of us, this will be true. When your last breath is done, you will go back to having nothing. They won't be your clothes. They'll be somebody else's clothes, right? It won't be your house and your car. It'll be somebody else's. And what what Paul is saying is you start out with nothing. At the end of the day, you're going to end with nothing. The question is, what does it look like in the middle? And see, Paul knows these false teachers... All they're doing is they're stirring people up towards trying to have more and more and more. And Paul says, listen, I've had the most and I've had the least. And I've learned what it really means to be content. I don't have to have all of that. And I don't have to have, I can be content with where I am. Are you following me? So Paul has set the stage for the scouting report. Now let's read the scouting report, all right? Here's what Paul says. And uh, Paul says it this way. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Oh, by the way, there's that word again. But if we have food and clothing, there's content. We will be content with that. Paul says this, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. In your outline, I've just laid out uh, four things that I think a good scouting report does. And so I'm going to invite you just right there in the middle of your outline to write down the answers to each one of these questions involved in this particular scouting report that Paul just gave us. And the first one is this, who is our foe? All right. And he's going to be making it very clear. And you can, you can put several words here if you want to. You just, it's not just one. You know how the, you know how the, the Georgia, uh, University of Georgia can have a, a football team and they have, go by different names, right? Some people call them, you know, University of Georgia. Some people call them Georgia Bulldogs, you know, the dogs. Lots of it. I'm going to give you the same thing. It all comes in three, different, like, three or four different names. 
Write this one down. Who is our foe? Greed. Greed will rob you of contentment. Who is our foe? Write this one down right next to us. It's the same thing. Materialism. Wanting more. Matter of fact, when Jesus was talking, Jesus didn't call it greed or materialism. You know what Jesus called it? He called it mammon. You remember that? You ever, ever heard that word mammon? When I, was, when I was a young Christian, I didn't know what that word meant. And, and, and it really is the essence of our culture that we live in now. Mammon. Your foe is greed, materialism, mammon. It is the longing to have more and more and more. Somebody once asked a very rich guy, a very notable guy here in America, what does it take to really be satisfied? And his answer was just a little bit more. You're just a little bit more, and then you're satisfied for a little while, and then a little bit more, right? That is who our foe is. And let me tell you, your foe, as you will see, is very strong. It's an enemy. It wants to steal you of life and steal you from the place God called you to be. Look at the second question. How strong is our enemy? Well, let me just give you, get you to circle some words, okay? And I bolded them right there on the screen. Circle these words in that passage. Circle the word plunge. That's what your enemy can do. Ruin. Circle the word destruction. That is the goal of the enemy. Greed, materialism, mammon. Circle, circle the phrase, a root of all kinds of evil. By the way, often misquoted scripture, money is the root of all evil. That's not the way it says. The Bible says money is a root of all kinds. It's a root, not the root, a root of all kinds of evil. I'm going to pause there for a minute. So do you realize how many places there is, there's, there's chaos, there's confusion, there's, there's disconnect, there's arguments in your life sometimes where it's related with money? I mean, most married couples, we have to talk about money even in a premarital uh, journey, because money has the way of bringing problems with things, okay? Money is a root of all kinds of evil. Look at this next one. Um, circle the word wandered. Circle the word pierced. Circle the word griefs. Are you just hearing alone from those, those words how strong your enemy is? These are not play words. Your enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy from you does not want you to learn what contentment is, wants you to stay discontented and be like every other person in this American culture who's just trying to get more and more and more materialistic, right? That's who our enemy is. That's, that's how strong our enemy is. Now, the next question in the, in the scouting report is, what does the enemy do? What's the tactics, all right? So I've, I did some different words. Maybe you would box these. Don't circle these. Box these, okay? So you can see the difference. These are the tactics. You'd box the word temptation, that's how your enemy gets you to bite. Box the word trap. Box the word foolish. A foolish. And then uh, uh, box the word harmful desires. Babe, you got that for me? Thank you. Harmful desires. So, these are the tactics. Now, real quickly... Let me make sure you understand those tactics. The enemy wants us to fall into temptation, into traps, into foolish decisions, foolish choices, and to pursue harmful desires. I need to get you to understand this for a minute. I said it last week, I'll say it one more time. We live in a culture where billions and billions of dollars every year are spent on trying to get you to be discontent. You understand that, right? It makes sense. I mean, I, 
I'm preaching through this series last night, and my, my antenna and my radar is up more now than ever at the commercials on the TV. Buy this car, right? You don't, you, you don't need that, that junk out in the driveway. Here's a new one, right? And get the new 2017 model, right? And 2018s are on the way, right? You get that picture? I mean, I, we were sitting there watching last night, Miller time, you know, Miller time. They were, they were playing a jingle that I heard as a child back in the 70s, right? You know, and I was listening to that. And, and I was thinking about this is the enticement, right? Foolish, harmful desire. This is the enticement. This is it. I mean, it's everywhere, guys. For you ladies, you know, I, I think about how something's in style this year and it's not out. You know, it's the shirt that was wide, the skirt that was middle, and the skirt that's shorter, and it's the heels that are up this year. And now in the spring, it's going to be down. It's, it, see, do you realize the culture we live in? Do you realize how that works? See, guys, we live in a culture that is trying to entice us and tempt us and trap us all the time. And you need to understand this is the tactic of the enemy. I asked my wife to bring something from my, my garage, and uh, she went to my tackle box, and she brought me a fishing lure. This is, this is the metaphor this is the metaphor that I would use for you when we're talking about the enemy's tactics, all right? To a fish, it looks very attractive, right? I love this one. This is my favorite one because you can't even see the hook. I mean, you can't even see. It's all hidden in there, and, it, and it's shiny. It's so shiny to them, right? It's got this little spinner bait on it that will spin, and what it wants the fish to do is bite into it, but there's going to be a hook. Are you seeing that? Now, if I could just give you a picture of where we are in our American culture, I want you to think about this. You're not just a fish in the water where there's a, there's a lure going by about 20 yards away. That's not the way it is. You're a fish in the water. And imagine all the lures around you. Imagine all the hooks. I mean, we're not fish in the water. And we live in America. And you live with magazines and TV shows. You, you live with billboards you live with hooks every blooming place in the world and so you are surrounded by hooks and dare i say that when it comes to greed materialism what jesus called mammon i think what we're going to learn today for most of us is that the lures are not out there somewhere oh yes they're out there too, but but more importantly for some of us they are in our mouth for some of us, they're in our throat. For some of us, we've swallowed the whole thing. And it's guide us, got us by a line. I'm not playing games when I talk about an enemy that wants to steal from you. I'm not play, playing games when I say this enemy wants to destroy the truth in you and does not want you to become what God wants you to become. So what's the tactics? The tactics? It's to lure you in, it's to tempt you, it's to trap you, it's to make you make foolish choices and have harmful desires and pull you in. That's the tactic of the enemy. And where are we vulnerable? I want you to circle this one word, or underline it, underline this one word. Underline the word wandered. The Bible says some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves. Wandered from the faith. The idea is, watch this. The idea is that you don't just wake up one day 
and make a decision that you're going to, you know, your mom and dad taught you this and you've grown up a certain way and maybe you've learned how to handle money, X, Y, and Z, and then all of a sudden tomorrow you wake up and you just make a decision. You know what I'm going to do. I am so tired of living the disciplined life. I'm so tired of doing it mom and daddy's way. You know what I'm going to do? I am going to shoot the moon. I'm going to go hog wild. I'm going to get rich. I'm just going to go. Whatever I got to do, I'm going to get rich. You don't wake up and do that. Nobody does that. You realize that, right? Nobody does that. What they actually do is they begin to wander. Now, what is this the picture of? Uh, The picture of wandering. Let's go back to our, our little, since we're already in a boat with a fish, right? Have you ever been in a boat before and had the conversation go, go so good, all of a sudden the boat drifted off and you went, wow, how did we get up? The current took you somewhere. You ever been there before? That's the picture of wandering. The picture of wandering is when all of a sudden you drift somewhere you didn't even mean to go. I mean, the picture is when you wander and you start moving towards materialism, greed, and, 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 and mammon, you, you're the last person to know. Jesus said it this way, um, the Riches are deceitful. There is a deceitfulness of riches. Those were Jesus' words. That there is a deceitfulness of riches. And again, it means that everybody else sees what you're doing, but you don't see what you're doing. You don't realize how you're wandering from the truth, how you're wandering because of the pursuit of stuff. So, interestingly enough, one time Jesus was teaching. And, I, and, and by the way, Do you know that Jesus talked about money more than he talked about the kingdom of God? Jesus talked about money all the time. And can I just take a minute to apologize for a minute? Because there's a lot of pastors who never talk about money. And, and, And we need to talk about money because Jesus talked about money. And and we'll talk about this especially later on in the message. But guys, Jesus was one time teaching about this issue, along with many other times, and Jesus said it this way. You can't, you got to choose. You cannot serve God and mammon at the same time. Those are strong words. Let me say it a little differently. You cannot serve God and serve materialism at the same time. Jesus divided it. He said, boom, you're either in one camp, you're in the God camp, or boom, you're in the materialism camp. You don't get a choice. Jesus said, it's one Or the other. You can't do both at the same time. You see how real Jesus was? Jesus knew the power of the enemy. And he was saying, you you cannot do both of these at the very same time. And so what what happens is we need to to realize we're in a society that advertises, advertises, advertises. I was on the way to church this morning, and uh, my friend in the diamond business came on. Do you know who I'm talking about? You have a friend in the diamond business. I don't know you. But you, I have a friend, I have a friend in the diamond business. You know what he talked about? I kid you not. You might have heard the same commercial. The other retailers will try to lure you into their business, showing you all of the, and I'm thinking, you're trying to lure me into my, into your business, you know? You're not my friend. I don't need a diamond, you know? Those commercials, those advertisements are around you so much that it is so easy. Listen, God brought you to church today to hear this. It is so easy to wander from the truth. And you can start looking like the rest of the world, all about materialism, all about greed, wanting more and more and more, sitting in the camp of of mammon, not the camp of God. So, today what I want to talk to you about is 
How do you break the grip of greed? How do you avoid the silent assassin? How do you get that lure out of your mouth if it's got you caught up? That's what I want to talk about. So look at that big box in the very middle of your life. How can I break grip's greed on my life? Now is when we're going to turn to the Philippian church, okay? We're going to turn to the Philippian church because the Philippian church has a lot to teach us about how to really be content and to be generous and to be pursuing God. And so how can I break greed's grip on my life before I even get to number one? Can I tell you the starting place was, if you missed last week's message, go back and listen to that. You need to hear all about how to be thankful, how to be teachable, how to be um, uh, flexible, how to be dependent on God. That is a foundational message that Paul was saying, look at who you are to the Philippian churches. He was writing his thank you letter to them and saying, I see these things in you. You are growing in God, and they were those things. And that classic scripture, I can do all things through Christ, is where we left off. Where we're talking about what does it mean to really be dependent upon God? Not upon the world, not upon my bank account, not upon my 401k. What does it really mean to be dependent on God? What does that look like? Now, you, if you get that, now we can take off with the next practices, okay? Are you ready? That's what we're going to do. We're talking about how to break grips greed on your life. Now, right before, you see that little box on the page there? And right before it says number one, all right, I want you to write something in there. And I just want, don't, I just want to remind you, this series is called The Secret of Contentment. And in case you missed it last week, let me define what the secret is. Contentment can be learned. You might want to write that right underneath that box. What is the secret to contentment? Contentment can be learned. How do I learn it? Well, you practice certain things, right? You need to practice, practice, pra- practice being thankful, practice being teachable. Practice being dependent, practice being uh, flexible. You're practicing these things. Now, today I'm going to give you more practices, okay? More things that you can add into your heart and into your life and your practice where you will be be breaking the grip of greed. You will be moving away from the target of the silent assassin, and you will be getting that lure out of your mouth. So step number one, write this one down. Step number one for today is develop personal compassion. Develop personal compassion. I'm not talking about you living on your mom and dad, what they cared about. I'm not talking about you living on your spouse, what they care about. I'm talking about you having compassion for others. And in the very right-hand margin, I'm going to give you a point, a principle, and then I'm going to give you a practice. And the practice is in the right-hand margin. So write this one down. Here's the practice. And we're going to read it in Scripture, how the Philippian church did it. Put others' needs ahead of my wants. Write that one down. That's the practice. When I learn how to put others' needs ahead of my wants. <laughs> By the way, we all got a lot of wants, don't we? So let me go ahead and give you the picture. I'm going to go ahead and give you the picture of what the Philippians do right away. They had things they could spend money on. They had things that they wanted. And you know what they do? They see Paul, and they decide to sow towards Paul. They see Paul, and they decide they're going to meet Paul's needs. Read it with me. It's right there. We're picking up from uh, verse 13, Philippians 14, 4, 14 and 15. Paul said, Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. That word, he's talking about, it was, it was good of you to be the church for me, to be the koinonia you shared, you shared with me. But he's not just saying you shared with me in my troubles. He's saying, first of all, you were sharing with me in my ministry. And now that, now that I, by the way, remember where Paul's writing Philippians from, a jail cell, right? He's writing Philippians from a jail cell. He's going through a troubled time. But he says, it was good for you to share 
with me in my troubles. You're sharing with, you shared with me in my ministry, now you're sharing with me in my, in my troubles. They had sent a gift to him with a guy named Epaphroditus. He says, moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, by the way, you might just want to put in the margin there 10 years. Scholars think it was about 10 years before this that Paul had met these people. He had planted a church there in Philippi. And it, they've got about a 10-year-old relationship, and now they're sending him an offering to help him in the middle of his trouble. And he says, moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared, koinonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. If you got your pen, you might just want to under, underline, not one church shared shared. So Paul had known these people, and now Paul was doing ministry, and there was not one church that loved him, cared for him, that was generous enough to look after him, that helped him, except for the Philippian church. And Paul writes them back with this thank you letter, and it's not just so much about him thanking them for their generosity. You know what he's doing? He's celebrating who they are in God. He's celebrating who they are becoming in Christ, that he sees this generosity inside of them. And he says, there was nobody else helping me. It was you. You saw me in my need. And I know you had wants that you could have done something else with that, but you sent me a gift from where you were. Now, let me, let me share how this works. We're talking about developing a personal compassion, Okay. If in America, this is our world, that we have lures everywhere and hooks everywhere, let me, let me tell you, the, the tendency is for you to wander towards materialism and mammon because we live in that kind of culture. And the tendency is, when you've got lures all around you, to be able just to see lures. My wife, she, I, I, she could have brought my whole tackle box, you know, she brought a couple of different lures for me this morning. And can you imagine if I had, you know, 25 other hands and I could hold all these lures out here right now? And can you imagine moving around like this all the time? And can you imagine what it's like to be in this culture that we live every day with advertisements everywhere where we are? And, and watch this. I'm coming down because I don't know that you're getting it, okay? Watch this. We're around lures all the time. And you know what's so easy? To do this right here. Watch. Oh, oh, that's, you know, that's the idea. I got to keep my eyes on that one thing right there. That's what a lure does. Are you tracking with me? <clears throat> You're going to develop a personal compassion. Paul is saying you had a lot of things you could spend money on. You had a lot of things that were your wants, but you know what you did? You looked beyond every one of those things and you saw me. You look right beyond those things that were going around you, just like I can see Wayne right now. And you said, look at him. If you could get the power of what I'm teaching you right now, this could transform your life. It is so easy to look at the next expansion of the house that we will make, the next renovation on the bathroom. It is so easy to look at the RV and the boat and the, and the new lake house we can spend. And do you realize that every time you're doing that, you're not looking beyond the lures? I'm not saying we can't ever do something for ourselves, but what I am saying is our tendency in this culture is to look at all the stuff that's being put around us and not see two things that are beyond, always will be beyond the lures. 
The first thing that's beyond the lures is somebody out there hurting and somebody else in need. And you cannot have a personal compassion if you can't even see them. And the second thing that's beyond the lures is God. God calling you to get beyond that self and get to something deeper. And how can you ever have a deeper compassion for something that's more eternal? But by the way, at the end of the day, when everything goes back in the box and you're all done with this life, these things won't matter. You know what will matter? Two things. People and God. How are you ever going to grow a deeper compassion unless you find a way to look beyond this thing and see the need beyond? You know good and well. In your neighborhood, there's people hurting. In your office or in your school or in your, in your practice, there are people who are hurting. Paul said, you look beyond your wants and you did something for my needs. You were compassionate. You see how he's celebrating that in their life? This is beautiful. This is a God thing. That This is who you are as a church. And he celebrated them as a church for what they were doing. You, you saw a need. And you did without over here so that you could meet that need. And let me just ask you, you want a little quick litmus test on this? How often are you doing without something to be able to meet a need somewhere else? I mean, what would it look like for you this week to actually look around you and see who's hurting out there and then evaluate? You know, wonder what would happen if I cut Starbucks out for about three weeks if I might be able to minister to them. What would happen if I did without X or Y or Z? What if I did without this or that? You want to grow in compassion? First of all, look beyond the lures to who's hurting in your world. Or maybe what the whisper of God is that He's calling you to, to do that you didn't even know. And, and, and move beyond the lures. Pull away from the hype. Pull away from the advertisements and look beyond... And then see, okay, God, what would you want me to do to meet that need? I can put away a want to meet somebody else's need. I'm, what am I talking about here? I'm talking about breaking the grip of greed, materialism, mammon in your life. And it starts with your heart. You grow your heart. You grow your heart. I said to you last week, contentment isn't something out there that one day you'll get to. Contentment is a work in you that God wants to do inside of you. It starts here. And you've got to say, God, I'm going to look beyond all the hype and all the lures and all the temptations and the traps and the foolish and the harmful desires, and I'm going to see the needs that are really out there. And I may sacrifice, I may do without my wants so that I can do for somebody else with their needs. That's step number one. Write this one down. Step number two. I'm going to go faster. Develop a generous spirit. Develop a generous spirit. By the way, this is an attitude of generosity. Develop a generous spirit. And, and, and here's the practice. Release my grip and sow generosity. Release my grip on stuff or money or whatever I've got. Release it and sow generosity. By the way, if you're sitting here today and you don't ever come to Harvest Point, you don't know who I am that really well, and you think to yourself, oh, this is just some preacher talking about getting a great... Listen, you, oh, you could not be farther from the truth. Because what I'm talking about is not even necessarily the church at all right now. I'm talking about you becoming a generous spirit, somebody who sows out there into the community, into your neighborhood, into your family, out there beyond you. You, be, you develop a generous spirit and you release your grip on the very thing that's binding you up. You become a generous spirit. You look how you can sow, sow into other people. By the way, some of you guys, you're teaching me about this. 
I see so many people in our church who have a generous giving spirit, and I love, I, I celebrate you like Paul celebrates the Philippian church. Look what Paul said. He said, for even when I was in Thessalonica, by the way, Thessalonica is like the rich zone, okay? Even when I was in Buckhead, all right? That's what he means, all right? For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent more me aid more than once when I was in need. I mean, even when I was there, you kept on ministering to me. You see what he's saying? So what Paul is really saying is, listen, this thing's got a hold of you. This lure is not just in your lip. It's stuck in your mouth and it's in your throat. And the only way you're going to break this thing is you have got to release your grip on stuff and you've got to begin to sew out into somewhere else. And then that thing starts coming out of there. You getting that picture? Now, you, you are not going to like what I'm about to say. <laughs> very often I say that. You are really not going to like what I'm about to say. But I was trying to get a, an understanding about how we could be real brass tacks about this and how this enemy's just got us by the throat, how it's really got us. Because, hey, listen, we're all Americans. Yeah, even the Canadians sitting over there, we're all Americans now, right? <laughs> and we are surrounded with hooks everywhere. So let me, uh, here's how I want to do it. I want to take a little quiz, and everybody's got to vote, all right? Robert, you don't get to play games. You've got to vote, all right? Hand's going to shoot up in the air when I ask this question, all right? So here's the question. I've got about five, okay? Five questions on this little test. Together, let's do it together. How many of you would say, as a general rule, when you go out to eat at a restaurant, before you leave and get back in your car, you leave a tip? Let's see how many of you raise your hand. Look around for a minute. Look around, look around. That's about all of us. Okay, take it on How many of you would say that you leave 10%? Oh, some of you are not going to want to vote this way. <laughs> but let's just tell the truth. We're in church. How many of you would say you leave 10% and pretty much not anymore? You, you're kind of, kind of do about the 10% rule. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Come on, I see you. Now, good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for voting. How many of you would say that I used to do that, but now I, I kind of do 15%. That's what I do. Raise up your hands. Let's see. As a general rule, 15%. Look around. Look around. A lot of us do 15%. How many of you, maybe even because you were a waitress or a waiter at some point, you, you actually do more than that? You do like 18 to 20%. Raise up your hand. Wow. Now, and you need to, you need, we're doing this test for a reason. Look around for a minute. The majority of us in this room, that blows me away, leave, as a general rule, more than 15%, 18 to 20%. Now, now, this is interesting to me, and I want you to think about this for a minute. Do you have to leave a tip? Have you ever not left a tip before? You ever done that? You got poor service or this or that? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, oh okay, then let's test it. I don't know. How many of you have, never, have, have been to a place you got poor service and you did not leave a tip? Raise your hand up. Now look around for a minute. Look at that. Okay, that's about all of us, all right? Now what's amazing is that there's no law or no rule. As a matter of fact, when you didn't leave a tip, the police didn't show up and put you in handcuffs, you know? Or ninjas hop out and go, whoa, you didn't leave a tip. It didn't happen, right? It just didn't happen. Now why is it? Here's what I'm thinking about. I live in the same culture that you live in. And what is it that makes me leave the tip thing? I mean, is it... Is it peer pressure? Is it some type of societal pressure? I'm going to leave a tip for a waitress or a waiter. And here's the interesting thing. Get this. They did not even make my food. 
whoever made my food is back there in the back. They just brought the food to my table. They asked me what, I, and I'm going to leave somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 15 to 18 to 20 percent for them. And all they did was look after me. What has happened in America? What has happened? Here's, here's, the, here's the part that I told you you are not going to like. What has happened in America with the kind of peer pressure and societal pressure that every one of us feel when we go out to a restaurant, we feel we, like we absolutely must leave at least 10%, possibly 15, possibly 18 or 20. We feel like we've got to do that. That's just something we're not doing it otherwise. To a person who didn't make the food, who didn't create the food, who didn't cook the food, he didn't, they, didn't, they, they just brought the food to the table. And yet in this same culture, American culture, 2.7% of the American culture gives 10% of their first fruits to God. 2.7% of the American culture gives 10% of their first fruits to God. And this is interesting because we're giving 10 to 15 to 18 to 20% to a person who didn't even make stuff and didn't even cook stuff and they just kind of delivered it. But we won't even give 10, by and large, we won't even give 10% to the God who flung the stars in space, who spoke us into existence, who's given us promise for eternity. Are you following me? Here's the question. Here's the question. What has happened in America? What has happened in America? Where together we collectively feel this pressure. Together we collectively feel this sociological trend that we've got to be a part of. But only 2.7% of Americans will give 10, 10% of their first fruits to God. And listen, I'm, I'm not begrudging waitressing and waiters. I'm, I do that. I do it just like you do it. But here's the question, and this is the part that you that might be really hard for you to hear. I thought you were already there, Stephen. Let's keep going. Okay. If you say to yourself, well, when it comes to tipping 10%, 15%, 18%, 20%, I, I'm, I'm pretty consistent in that. I do that normally. This is, this is my consistency here. And then you can look over here and say, when it comes to me giving of the first fruits of my income of 10%, I am... Remarkably inconsistent there. I would tell you, in the name of the Son of God, who taught by the seashore of Galilee, that mammon has you in its grip. And you don't even know the lure, the temptation, the trap that you've been caught in. How powerful is our foe? How powerful is our foe to change our entire network and our country that we live in? If you get a picture of this, now you have a picture of what it means to wander from the truth. Now you have a picture of what it means to wake up one day and go, We've been drifting. We've been drifting so far away. And, and if you could just get point number two and point number one. Point number one is your heart. All right? 
You look beyond the lures and you see the need out there and you let your heart change. You develop a personal compassion. But point number two is beyond your heart, it's going to move to your hands. And you say, how can I be generous? I will release the grip of greed and materialism and mammon in my life and I will sow it to somebody else. Do you get that picture, guys? These are the practices that can lead you to contentedness. These are the things you do to break the grip of discontent and to be what Paul said, godliness with contentment is great gain. Look at number three, and I'm going to close. Number three is develop an eternal perspective. Develop an eternal perspective. What do you mean by that, Stephen? I mean, if, you, if we could only see, I think it would change everything about us, how we, how we are compassionate and how we are sowing in generosity, if we could actually see what happens in heaven whenever we sow and do God's good work. Now, here's what I want you to write down in the practice. Grasp, understand, deal with, comprehend, grasp the inseparable relationship between money and worship. Grasp comprehend, understand the inseparable relationship between money and worship. By the way, all throughout Scripture, Jesus is teaching about money and how it's tied up with our worship and our heart. All right, now, watch this, watch this. We think about money and worship two different ways. All right, we think about this is my money over here and this is my worship over here. And for God, God's basically saying you can't ever separate the two. They are inseparable. I sometimes say it, I say this phrase in, new, in our New Connections clap, and I think nobody in the room believes it. Every time I say it, I think they're going, right. I'll make this statement, and, it, and I say this, every spending decision you make is a spiritual decision. And that, I think people kind of, that glosses over them. But what I want you to understand that Jesus taught was that your heart and your money, your treasure, they're all tied together. They're, they're, they're inseparable. Your money and your worship are tied together. Now, hey, listen, I'm not talking about what you give in church or worship. Like That's not what I'm talking about. How you deal with money in your everyday life is a, is a, is a statement about your worship. So, so track with me here real quickly, guys. How, you, how you're taking care of your family and how you're doing with your money. How your marriage is dealing with money. How you're doing with money in your workplace. This is all affecting. This is all contributing. This is all a part of your worship and who you are and how you're living and who you're declaring is your king. How you're dealing with money in your business. How you're dealing, dealing with everything, how you're, how you're trying to leave a legacy for the futures that are to come in your own, all of this is tied with money. And why in the world have preachers allowed money to become a bad word in the church when Jesus taught about money all the time? We've got to think about how money is operative in our lives beyond church, but in church as well. We've got to think about how money and worship are inseparably tied together. And, and this, is, this is the eternal perspective I want to give you. Look at what Paul says. You'll understand it better from Paul than you're understanding it from me. Paul says it this way, Not that I desire your gifts, but what I desire is that more be credited to your account. Might want to underline that, that little more be credited to your account. You know what Paul said? Paul said, yes, I got that check you sent me from Epaphroditus. That was awesome, and you know I was in need. But can I tell you what's even cooler than that? What's cooler than that is that right now I'm so excited that something was credited to your account in heaven. By the way, I don't even know what that means. But according to the Bible, it looks like God, that Paul is saying, okay, there's these things in heaven that are debits and credits, and whenever you sow like this and you meet a need, you meet some, you look, you, there's somebody in your office, in your, in your school that's hurting, you do without to make sure that you take care of them, and all of a sudden, something great happens in heaven, and it's credited to your account. Paul said, you gave to me, and I'm so excited that it was credited to your account. Look what he says, 
I have received full payment. It's like he's saying, I got the check right here. I'm holding the check in my hand. Epaphroditus left me. I've received full payment, and I have more than enough. He's saying, I already knew what, I, I, I know contentment. I learned the secret to contentment. I was fine before the check came, but you bless me. I'm holding the, the check. I have more than enough. Now watch. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Look at this. They are, I want, I want you to underline three things. A fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. You see, what Paul is saying is that when you gave, whenever you sow, get the eternal perspective. Your money and your worship are inseparably tied together. When you gave to me as a church, the Philippian church, do you realize what happened? It was like a fragrant, a burnt offering went up to heaven. And as you gave, that offering arrived to God. And, and, and for God, as he received that, he didn't just receive it as your gift to me. What he received it as was a sacrifice to him. And it brought great joy and gladness to his heart in who you are and what you had done. Are you seeing the eternal perspective of, of what's happening with your money? So I'll say it again. Every financial decision that you will ever make is a spiritual decision. There's, and I'll also say it this way. Whenever you sow into somebody else's life in need, a spiritual transaction, and I don't even know what that means. I don't even know what that looks like. But a spiritual transaction happens in heaven in your account. One day I'll know what it means. But Jesus said it this way. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust and thieves can't steal it. Sew it up there. Make transactions there in the way you minister to folks here. You see what Jesus... That if you and I... I'll say it one more time. If you and I could really see what compassion, what generous spirits, and the things that happen in heaven, when we do that kind of thing, it would change us. We would be more compassionate. We would be more generous. We would be storing up more for ourselves in that place. Well... I got to close. I'm going to close with a scripture that's not even there, okay? If you have your Bible, I invite you to read it with me. It's actually um, 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's just a little bit farther than the scouting report. So Paul just, Paul skips down a little bit and then he says these words. He, he, he gives four commands to Timothy to tell those people who are rich in this world. Hey, everybody look at me. Quit reading the screen. Look at me for a minute. Hey, if you don't know it yet, you're in the top 2% of the rich in the world. So Paul writes to Timothy and he said, tell those who are rich in this world this, I have the privilege, I have the boldness, I have the responsibility of telling you what Paul told these people because you're the richest people in the world. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but number one, to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. That's number one. Four rules here. Number one, put your hope in God. Don't trust in that other stuff. Put your hope in Him. He's the only thing that won't let you down. Look at the next one. Command them to three things. To do good. Number two. To be rich in good deeds. Number three. And to be generous and willing to share. Number four. 
you just got the prescription for how we're supposed to live, okay? We're supposed to put our hope in God, not in the lures. Look beyond the lures, right? We're supposed to put our hope in God, not in trust in other things. We are supposed to do good. Now that means live in righteousness. Live in, a, live in the right way. Wherever you go, do right. Do justice. Do love mercy. Do good. Do good deeds. Look beyond the lures and sow good deeds and, and give to others and serve others. Do good deeds. And then finally, be generous and willing to share. And then look at this last verse. In this way, there it is. They will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So that they will not wander away from the truth, but that they will take hold of the life that is truly life. Have we heard the word of God today? I've heard it for me. I'm a preaching to myself. Yeah, this is, this is God's word for us. He wants us to grow in godliness with contentment for its great gain, right? And it can be learned, but we have to practice it. So what are you going to do this week? Well, here's the practice. I put it in three little kind of little small statements. I want to invite you. Here's how I want you to practice this week. This week. First one is look around. Look around, look past the lures, look, in, look at your, the three cubicles over, look three houses down, look around you, look around you and look for the need that's out there. Look past the lures, look past your own wants, look for the needs. The second one is this one, look within, look within. This is where the heart and the, and the hands have to connect together. Look within and ask yourself a simple question. You want to look within, ask yourself, what want could I do without to meet that need? And then finally, look up. When you sow, when you sow and you minister, this week, try to do it differently than you did it last week. This week, I want you to think about heaven. Just dream. Dream about a burnt offering coming to God. Dream about a transaction happening in heaven. Dream about a credit growing there for you. Dream about you storing up things for the life that is truly life. And may we together grow to be more like Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, you're so good, and I thank you that you're working on us. I just invite you, God, continue that good work. Help us this week to put this stuff into real practice. Give us eyes to see. And Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus, if we've had hooks in our mouth or in our cheeks or in our throat or in our stomach, pull those things out and grow us in deeper contentedness. And help us to see all of the lures around us and, and just go past them, God. Help us to be your people meeting needs in the world and help us to grow in generosity. In the name of Jesus, I pray that every person in this place would put their hope in you, not their hope in something else. They would put their hope in you, that they would do good and that they would do good for others, do good deeds. And I pray that they would be generous and willing to share wherever you might show them. It might be in their school, it might be in their in the bank, it might be in, 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 their, in their neighborhood. Show them those places, God. And may you grow in us that generosity and willingness to share. And God, in the next few minutes, we were reminded that we get a chance to do this every week together as the body of Christ. So take these, our offerings, and these, our tithes, these, our gifts, and multiply them way beyond our reach. We pray that you would con continue to advance your kingdom work here in, in this county and in this Southland area. But we pray that, God, the gifts that we give would go across the world as we bless missionaries and other agencies way beyond us, bless them with these, these, our gifts, God, these offerings, we pray. We give in your name and your glory, in the name of Jesus.